0: For our light affliction that might be standing right now for some of you so long for our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So from this text and the Bible in general, I'd like to teach tonight on the word perspective. God bless you. Please be seated. Thanks for standing. And thank you for being in church tonight and bringing your your children and your crossover students and your crowd, young people. And when it's time for hyphen, that as well. Thank you for raising them to love God first. When I was on about the ninth page of my preparation tonight, I was about halfway through my notes, a little more than that. uh, I asked myself, haven't I taught on this general subject before? So I looked, and I just want you to know that on September 15th, 2021, I taught a message on the proper perspective. I think there's just one verse that will overlap between these two themes, uh, but I just wanted you to know that, not an apology, but an explanation And if you want to go back and hear more on this subject, on perspective, from a different perspective, then you can go back and watch or listen to the message on September 15th, 2021. Good old COVID year, right? In the middle of all of that registration only church. Perspective is how we see life or a particular aspect of life. One dictionary, and I always try to have several references. A perspective is a particular way of thinking about something, especially one that is influenced by your beliefs or experiences. Perspective is a particular attitude towards something in life. It's your point of view. Uh, Your perspective may or may not be right, But it's still your perspective. I was thinking. And I just kind of thought of this. Last minute. And inserted into my notes. Media doesn't have this. You remember the Pharisee. That went to church to pray. And he and the publican. The Pharisee and the publican. And make a good sermon. They went to pray. And the, the Pharisee was praying. And he looked across the church. And he saw the tax collector. And he He started praying uh, and he said to God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, even like that tax collector. He had a holier than thou perspective, right? You know, God, I thank you. I'm not like that horrible person. And then he started telling God how good he was. I fast twice a week, pay tithes on everything I possess. The tax collector who's standing afar off, like over in a corner, doesn't feel very worthy. Wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's pounding on his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His perspective was that he needed the mercy of God. The Pharisee's perspective was, God's pretty lucky, he's got me. And the, the, Jesus said that this publican went down to his house justified rather than the super-religious Pharisee. Because whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see how he had a, a perspective that was inaccurate, but that's still how he saw church, how he saw his relationship with God. So I'd like for you to just entertain for a moment here that you may have a perspective that needs a little help. You may think you have the proper perspective. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Our perspective is shaped by what we believe and what we've experienced in life. In, in legal terms, a precedent is a basis for how decisions are made. Precedent is an earlier event or action that's regarded as an example or guide. You consider it in subsequent or similar Circumstances. So if you have an experience in life, it sometimes shapes your perspective on life. It's like a precedent for you. And now you start viewing everything in the light of that experience, which may or may not be good in law. Precedent shapes legal decisions and precedent or previous experiences can shape our attitudes toward God, ourselves, people and life. In general, in life, what happens to us can be like a a precedent, an anchor point uh, for how we see current and future situations. For example, if you grew up and your father was absent, abusive, overly harsh, or stern, it is probable that you see your heavenly father the same way. As a former youth pastor, I had young people in the youth group that I led that could not believe that God loved them, had forgiven them, could never feel worthy. This is for years because their father was so harsh and overbearing, never expressed what Jesus heard. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They never heard that. they can never believe that God had a different view of them. So I'm talking tonight about perspective. And I want to just say this early on in my message, that we would be wise to base our perspectives on principles rather than subjective reasoning, experiences, or cultural norms. In other words, something is shaping the way you think. Something is shaping your view of life. And we Christian people need to make sure that we reject any input, ideology, value, relationship, practice that is against the Bible. And let the Bible be the final authority in our lives. So what is your perspective on Christian living? What is your perspective on the absolute authority of the scriptures? Is the Bible the final authority in your life? Or you maybe just consider what the Bible says and then you draw your own conclusions. The Bible may, for some people, be a voice, but it is not the voice in their life. Um, What is your perspective on, on moral issues facing our culture? Do you believe in moral and immoral issues? Do, what is your perspective on how we should live our lives? Do you live in light of time or do you live in light of eternity? I spent two Wednesday nights this year already, one Wednesday night teaching on time, one Wednesday night teaching on eternity. And it would be good. I hope you're thinking tonight, you know, John Maxwell wrote a book, Thinking for a Change. I like that book. I like that idea. I think he meant thinking for a change. Some people, it might be thinking for a change, but anyway. But I'd like for you to think tonight about what has shaped your perspective. Do you have a point of view that may not be aligned to the Word of God and is undermining your faith? It's undermining relationships. It's so undermining your eternal destiny. If you read the messenger that came out, I hope you did. If not, that could be something that you could read between now and Sunday. Sunday, Lord willing, I plan to preach on Revive Relationships, which is kind of a, the sequel to Revive Us Again, uh, part of January, what we were focused on in January. Uh, what did you learn from your parents? I'm talking about your perspective. What were you taught in school, in college? I attended public school all my life and uh, I look back and I see some views even back then in the dark ages of education that were probably uh, based on moral relativism instead of absolute. So I see that and I've tried to go back. What do you watch? What voices have shaped or are shaping your perspective? The news you listen to. The entertainment you partake in, the friends you have, the counselors you seek, religious voices in your life. Then what experiences have shaped your perspective in life? Maybe you've been traumatized. Perhaps you've been disappointed by someone that was significant in your life. Maybe your perspective is shaped by your own failure And it's hard for you to believe that you could succeed because you've now adopted the perspective, not that you failed, but that you are a failure. That would not be a proper perspective. Do you have a perspective in life that is one of hope or one of despair? Are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the church, about yourself, about the future? I I can say that, You know, as people get older, sometimes they tend to say they don't make them like they used to. It'll never be the same. And certainly from a moral perspective in our culture, there's been a decline of the moral fabric of our society. I'm going to ask these questions, right? Have you been listening to a voice that is undermining your faith? Jesus said that you should, you'll know them by their fruit. If they're producing thorns in their life, not Christian character, the fruit of the spirit, if their character is not very godly, then perhaps you should reject their voice in your life. You will know them by the fruit of their lives. Are they godly? Are they Christ-like? I've thought a lot about this, and I'm trying to really not trying to hurry tonight, so I may or may not finish, but. Uh, you know, sometimes what we call a half truth is really an insidious lie. When Satan comes to Eve, he says, "Has God said?" But well, like immediately, he just plants a little seed of doubt. Did God said you can't eat of every tree in the garden? So now he engages her. He has her listening, and he's talking. She's talking to the devil in the form of a servant. And then he says. You will not surely die. Well, that's a half truth. You will not immediately die, spi- die physically. But death in the Bible is separation. And there is physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death to be eternally separated from God. So when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, sinned, they were immediately separated from God by their sins. But you could say the serpent was right in a way they didn't immediately die physically. So you could say, if you're them, you could rationalize that he was right. We're not dead, sort of. But obviously they knew that they were naked, they were ashamed, they hid and all of that. A half-truth is an insinuation of something that leads you to draw a predetermined conclusion. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, you know, they were going to kill him. Then they sold him and they took his coat of many colors, killed a a sheep, a kid, the Bible says, so a goat maybe, and they dipped it in the blood. And they took the coat back to their father, Jacob. And they said, um, he said, where's Joseph? And all they did is just hold the coat up to their dad. And they said, well, just tell us, is this his coat or not? And when Joseph's dad saw the bloody coat, there's another good sermon for you, the bloody coats, like evidence, right? When he saw the bloody coat, then he drew a conclusion. He formed a perspective That shaped at least the next decade of his life. He knew it and he said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without rent in pieces. And he saw a picture of his favored son ripped to shreds by a wild animal and dead. He believed it. He believed the bloody coat. When Joseph uh, in disguise in Egypt asked his brothers to bring their youngest son Benjamin back and they tell Jacob about this the father Genesis 42, 36. and Jacob their father said unto them you have bereaved me you have bereaved of my children Joseph is not or he's dead Simeon who is kind of held as you know like a hostage sort of by Joseph on purpose he's dead And now you're going to take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. That's his perspective on life. And we know because we know the story in your Bible readers. You know, later Joseph will say, you meant it unto me for evil. God meant it unto me for good to save much people alive. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you. So Jacob is seeing the evidence of a bloody coat. He's seeing the circumstances of his life. And everything is pointing negative, down, failure. And he's losing his faith in God, the promises of God. And all this time, it is a faulty premise. It is a faulty conclusion. It's a wrong perspective. So if your premise is faulty, your perspective will be flawed. If you look at the bloody coat, that's a premise then your perspective is going to be everything's bad. So we need to make sure that we base our outlook on life, our perspective on life, on something that is true, will never change, can be trusted for time and for eternity. Now, I know you know what I mean. The Bible, right? Jewish people are taught to establish principles in their children that would shape their perspective. I do not have time to drill deep into Deuteronomy 6. Taught it in the baby dedication recently. Taught it in some leadership lessons recently about creating culture. I didn't get to that biblical perspective last night, Brother Maddox. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, soul, and might. So you parents, he's talking to parents, you should first love God, have a genuine faith, right? Love God with your whole being. And then I want you to teach the words that I'm giving you, teach them to your children. Give them in your heart, teach them to your children. Teach them diligently, not haphazardly, not randomly, not just delegating this to a wonderful chips, staff, hyphen, crowd, crossover, but the responsibility of parents. And then I don't want you to just teach it diligently, but I want you to fill their life with this. I want it to be your culture. I want you to talk about it in the morning when you're going down the road, you're sitting in your house when you walk by the way. And then I don't want you to just teach it. You know, I don't want you to just live it. I don't want you to just teach it. I want you to surround your life with it. He said, I want you to take these principles and write it on the the post of your house and on the gates that enter your house. I want my word and my culture to be everywhere so that your children will grow up with the perspective of godliness. So parents are to love God with their whole being, teach it to their children, live it in daily life, and uh, make sure that you fill your life with all of that. The Lord commanded Joshua something about God's word. I'm talking about what shapes your perspective, that it should be the Bible that shapes your perspective and it should have precedent, priority over every other voice in your life and it should nullify every voice that contradicts the Bible. Joshua 1 and 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all That is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Now this was more than a magic formula. That if you read your Bible. Read your Bible equals automatic success. But what God is saying to Joshua. I want you to get my word. Meditate on it day and night. So you understand it. It's part of the way you think. It is the way you think. And then. When the Bible shapes your perspective on life, it will guide you to do successful things. It will guide you away from doing dumb things, sinful things, foolish things, wrong relationships, right? So Joshua, if you can get my word in you, meditate on it day and night, then it's gonna guide you that your way, your walk in life is going to prosper and you're going to have good success. The best family principles are biblical. The best business principles are biblical principles. The most important principles that shape most important issues of life are biblical principles. The wisest sayings in in life are in the Bible. And if you want a book of wisdom... 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Read them a day, every day. You can go through the book of Proverbs in a month if it's a 31 day month. You might have to read two some months and you get the benefit of leap year, right? So February, you only have to make up two days instead of three if you read the book of Proverbs. So if you go, if you're going to base life, if you're going to live your life based on perceptions, he might turn out like Asaph almost did in Psalm 73. This is the verse I covered in, uh, in that other lesson, 2021. So I'm just going to kind of do a light, uh, treatment of Psalm 73. It's interesting that Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, in that lesson I referred to about the proper perspective, I really dealt mostly with Psalm 37. And then some Psalm 73. This is Asaph said, God is really good. But then he said, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my feet had nearly slipped. I'm New King James. If you like me, memorize in the King James, he said, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the witness. So everybody say perspective. He said, "I, I got in a really dangerous spiritual place. Because I saw bad people doing good in life. I saw wicked people prospering and it shaped my perspective on life. So he starts looking at successful evil people. And he says, he starts really drawing some faulty conclusions. There's no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men They're not plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly. They set their mouth against the heavens. And he's just thinking about how how amazing it is to not live for God. And then he said, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? This is ASAP. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They don't have any problems, do they? Uh-huh. They increase in riches. And then he, this is his conclusion. His perspective is shaping his value. He says, surely, this is Psalm 73, 13, if you happen to be following along or taking notes, I have cleansed my heart in vain. This living for God business is a waste. That's what he's saying. I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been plagued and chastened every morning. These guys have no problems. I'm, God's taking me to the woodshed and chastening me all the time. They've got everything good. I've got everything bad. This doesn't make any sense at all. This living for God. And he's saying, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Now on the screens. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, he's trying to compute what he learned growing up because he was raised in a godly home on Deuteronomy 6, a biblical perspective, but now these voices, these images, these people that he sees all around him have confused him. He has taken his eyes off principles. And he let his perspective be on personalities, on success, and all of that, right? I've run out of P words, some good alliteration there. It's painful for him, he said. Verse 17, the verse we all love. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Whoa, he said. I went to church. And then I understood therein. Thank God he went to church and his perspective was challenged. He was arrested, right, by a perspective from God. So then here's what he now sees. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought down to destruction. This is not on the screen. As in a moment, they're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, Lord, you awake and you'll despise this image. And he said, I was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Without understanding, without reasoning. I was just like an animal, he says. So do you see how we can be like that? Do you see how we can let our eyes, our observations, about worldly people, worldly processes, and all of that, success in time, shape our perspective, and ultimately change our direction, our values, undermine our faith in God. But to expand your perspective, to get a biblical perspective, an eternal perspective, arrests you and brings you back where you need to be. Amen. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of most of men most miserable. We are of all men most miserable. If this is all there is, we're going to be a miserable lot. Remember the rich fool Jesus spoke about in Luke 12? He lived with the perspective of time, and he has a really good harvest He's trying to figure out what to do with all the crops that come in that year. So he decides, I'll pull down my barns, build bigger barns, and then I'll say to my soul, you've got much good goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Because his perspective was, it's all about life. It's all about success. It's all about getting more. And while he's saying this, the Bible said that God, this is Luke 12 and 20 God said to him, thou fool. Now he's not a fool because he's a bad businessman. He's not a fool because he thinks ahead to build bigger barns. That's not what makes him a fool. What makes him a fool is his perspective. His perspective has nothing to do with giving, sharing. It's all about himself. And his perspective is limited to time. And he excludes any thought of eternity. So the Lord says, this night, your soul is going to be required of you. And then, who's going to get all this stuff? The John's paraphrase. So is he, Jesus said, that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a terribly flawed and fatal perspective to see time and not eternity. That perspective cost him his soul. For this rich fool, a rich fool, there's this nagging verse, Hebrews 9, 27, and as it is appointed unto men, once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now that's the middle of a thought, but all of a sudden, the judgment, you know, if you just die, and cease to exist. That's one thing. But if there's a judgment. And we believe there is. After death. Then that changes everything. It changes everything. About my perspective. On life. Which believe it or not. Finally leads me to 2nd Corinthians 4. 2nd Corinthians 4. 1. So I'm not going to go through all of 2 Corinthians 4, but I want to share a few insights about 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, Paul writes, as we have received mercy, we faint not. A couple of different ways of saying that. We do not lose heart. We do not despair. We do not lose courage. We do not give up. We do not give in to evil. Now, Paul likes this phrase, and this is why it's good to read your Bible, because I thought Paul said this more than once. So a quick search on accordance, my Bible program. Verse 16, for this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We'll come back to that verse. Galatians 6 and 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Ephesians 3.13, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul doesn't just say, don't give up. He tells us why you shouldn't give up. Don't give up because there's a reason to not give up. There's a basis, a perspective for not giving up. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 1, we don't give up because God's given us a ministry to fulfill in 4.16, we don't give up because though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is renewed day by day. In Galatians 6.9, we don't give up because in due season, we reap if we don't give up. In Ephesians 3.13, we don't give up because, because of Paul's tribulations, the gospel is preached. It's to our benefit. The immediate benefit of glory is what Paul is giving to them. So we don't faint. So 2 Corinthians 4, this could be another additional homework assignment to the Messenger article and Proverbs and whatever. 2 Corinthians 4 is about having a biblical perspective while you're facing trouble. Okay? you have gone through a difficult time, but you don't let your perspective become like Asaph in Psalm 73. You keep a biblical perspective. In verses 1 through 14, Paul goes through, some of these ideas, verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. That's a wordy verse. that means for all we're going through is going to let a lot more people come to God. This is why we're not giving up verse 16. I told you, you would see this verse again for though, for which cause there's a cause here cause and effect. There's a cause for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Paul says our, our, our human body, getting older, not as strong as we used to be. And I like to say to older people, think it not strange that you're getting older. And read Ecclesiastes, stuff happens when you get older. You shouldn't feel like God hates you now because things are happening that happen to you when you get old. Right? I didn't really go very good, but that's all right. (laughs) Paul's referring back to some of the hardships in his life. This earthen vessel. He said we're troubled on every side. We're perplexed. We're forsaken. Caring about the dying of the Lord Jesus. And of course, he gives the flip side of that in all those verses. But he's got an amazing perspective. That why I'm mortal I'm being revived inwardly every day. So I don't give up. I've got a perspective that while life is happening to me, my spirit doesn't have to get old and cranky. My spirit doesn't have to fall apart. My spirit doesn't get decrepit. It is being renewed every day. Verse 17. This verse is like so amazing. For our light affliction. Now think of, one of all the things he just said that he's going through. Our light affliction, not heavy, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now this is an amazing verse, you know, light affliction. And I was thinking about 2 Corinthians 11 and he goes through labors, more abundant, stripes, prison. Fear of death, beat five times with the Jews, three times beaten with robbed, stoned to death, revived in a shipwreck, spent a day and night floating around in the sea, journeys often, perils of waters, robbers, his own countrymen, perils of heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness, painfulness, watchings often, that's fasting, hunger, thirst, fastings often, excuse me, uh, watchings may be all night prayer meetings rather, excuse me. Cold nakedness. so I got all that stuff happening. Then I've got the care of all the churches every day going on in my life. So Paul, and he says, man, you know, this is such a light affliction. Why he's floating around, bobbing, you know, like a bobber in the sea. All night, all day. You know, this is not that bad. Beaten. This is not really going to last very long. That's his perspective. Romans 8, 17. I want to read 17 first. And if children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I reckon, proving Paul was a sevener. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not, I can't even hardly read this verse are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's his perspective. It's my light affliction. It's really not, it might last, you know, like a year, two, ten, lifetime. But it's just for a moment. He had this eternal perspective on suffering. And he said, this is working for me. Now, it's not a waste. It's working for me. It's, it's accomplishing Something in me is working, right? A far more exceeding, that's like a weight, an eternal weight of glory. The affliction is light, but the weight of glory is heavy. The affliction just lasts a little while, but the eternal reward lasts forever and ever and ever. What a perspective. Verse 17, again, I'm really going to 18, but I wanted to read 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And here's how Paul made this work. While well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I think in fairness to the context of this chapter, The things that Paul can see is all the hard stuff he's going through. He can see trouble all around his life. And I think that's what he's enduring. And those are the things that he can see. But the things that he cannot see is that eternal weight of glory. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. But it's more real. If anything is real, that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory is real. It's the stuff you can't see. That really counts. That's the perspective that we should have. So everything that we can see can mess us up. Can affect our perspective. But the things that we cannot see with the natural eye, the things that matter most are the things that should shape the perspectives of God's people. You can see things that are eternal. These trials are bearable. They're light afflictions. These trials are not lasting very long. Seems like just a moment. And because Paul's perspective is anchored in the Bible, then he's not moved by them. None of these things move me, he said. Neither can I my life dear unto myself, right? That's his talking in Acts. When we, live, we live in a postmodern culture. And in a postmodern culture, to a postmodernist, nothing is absolute. I have a whole lesson on absolutes. It's all just three things. A pre-modernist, truth is found in revelation. Like you can get truth out of the Bible and you can live by that and die by that. And it's good. To the modernist, truth is found in reason and science. Some of us grew up in that kind of a generation where it was reason and science, not principles of the Bible. But to a postmodernist, there is no truth. Truth cannot be found. You can search for it. You can have your truth and I can have my truth. But truth is not absolute for everyone. That perspective of the postmodern culture has undermined faith so that if nothing is true, then nothing is right. If nothing is false, nothing is wrong. And it has shaped the mentality, the mindset, the perspective of our culture. And the temperature on the outside has affected the temperature of many people who call themselves Christians. So, you know, if people, and you can read religious surveys and polls, and a lot of people who call themselves Christians do not believe in the inerrancy of the scripture. They believe that, that some of the Bible may be true and applicable, kind of pick and choose. But if you think like a postmodern person, you can redefine the definition of marriage. It's just a matter of perspective. You can promote transgenderism, that there's no objective male and female, and that's what a postmodern would say is acceptable. Someone sent me a clip of a transgender child and his or her mother making a presentation in front of 30,000 students at a mainline religious denomination, big conference of young people. I told Brother D.J. Hill this would be great for North American Youth Congress, uh, but I don't think he thought that was a great idea. I'm joking about something that's not funny, right? 30,000 religious kids. And their denomination put on the platform a transgender child to talk about how this is okay. So now the pollution of 30,000 minds sanctioned by their organization, by their church. But if you don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, if your perspective is postmodern, then that's just okay. Make abortion rights more about the rights of the mother than the rights of the baby. The unborn, just a matter of perspective. If if you and I are saved, it will be because our perspective was aligned to biblical principles. And we pulled our perspectives back to the reality of eternity. If we are lost, if you're lost, if I'm lost, it will be because I adopted or you adopted a perspective. But just marginalize the authority of the Bible it doesn't have to go way down in your life. Just one level that anything takes priority or precedence over Scripture, the authority of God in your life. And if you're lost, it will be because you just move something ahead of God. So I was studying today and I'm like always aim for a certain time here to dismiss. So I was working through this passage. Uh, I remembered a message that I preached here called Calibrate. And I preached it first here on January 1st, 2012, and I preached it a decade later on Sunday, January 2nd, 2022, in the middle of the COVID outbreak. So I don't remember if anybody was here. So I want to give you a real short version of the story. I'm hunting on Ossabelle Island, of a Sayche, maybe Jonathan, one of my boys, and it's really dark, thick woods. I have a place I'm going to go in the dark. I have a GPS. It's an old GPS. Now it doesn't work anymore. And uh, when I preached this in 2012, I brought it to church. I have my GPS, and I'm following it in the dark. And I can kind of see a little bit of daylight. There's a marsh over there, but I'm not getting there. Following my GPS. And nothing's working. I'm frustrated, sweaty. I stop. We'll let it get daylight, go. I don't see anything all day. All the anti-hunting people are happy. And so I, I want to find my way back, and, and it doesn't work. And so I start looking at my tracks on my GPS, and I literally am going in circles. So I'm ready to throw this in, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. So I go back, and I can't figure it out. And I, I didn't remember, but I replaced the batteries in my GPS, and when you read the instructions, it's always good to read the instructions. Men don't read instructions. Who needs instructions? I can figure this out on my own. The GPS will lose its calibration and you have to calibrate it again. Some people say recalibrate. I'm not sure that's a real word, but we use it. But you calibrate. So I calibrated my GPS and when I did, it worked perfectly. Well, To calibrate is to align yourself to a higher standard. Satellites, if it's a GPS and it locks in on multiple satellites and you can see them on your GPS as it locks in on them and it helps find your location and it guides you to your destination. But if you're not calibrated to the word of God, then that's why the way of man is not in him. It is not. In man that walketh to direct his steps, the Bible says. So then you're just, you're just kind of out there. You don't have an anchor. You don't have a true north. You don't have a moral foundation. So you just kind of wander around. And that is a picture of our culture. Would you please stand? So, what is your perspective on right and wrong? What is your perspective on time and eternity? What is your perspective on enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season compared to pleasures forevermore? What is your perspective on present suffering compared to future glory? What is your perspective on cultural norms compared to biblical principles? What's your perspectives? And is your perspective based on opinions or is your perspective based on principles. and How will your perspective fare in the consuming fire of God's judgment? What's your perspective and what is shaping your perspective? So tonight I just want us to uh, ask God to help us align ourselves to him, to calibrate ourselves to biblical true north, To a higher standard of God's word. Because it will guide us through life. It will keep us from despair. And it will save us for eternity. And one day when we are standing on streets of gold. The pavement. Right? The pavement of the holy city. We will say, you know what? It didn't make sense at times. But it is worth it all. To be standing here today. Today in the presence of God forever. Amen. If you're able, would you join me in the altar for a few minutes? If you need to go, I totally understand if you've got a super early morning. Let's open our hearts to God. And I just, I'm asking tonight that God would help us. I I know that, you know, the word of God, the Bible said, is sometimes like a hammer. Sometimes it's just like the dew that settles down over the grass and brings life to it. And tonight I feel like the Lord's word is like that dew of heaven that settles down over us that brings life and nourishment to our lives. Hallelujah. Lord, I want my perspective, oh God, to never be skewed by circumstances, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help me always stay true to your word That it would be the final authority in my life that nothing would ever dissuade me walking in your way but nothing would ever discourage me Lord from staying on the path that leads to eternal life